Welcome to the Business of You podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Gogos. This podcast is dedicated to helping you uncover how to turn your big idea into big business and grow your personal brand into the business of your dreams. Each week, I'll talk to founders of all kinds of businesses, exploring how they launched and grew their companies. Behind every successful business is an epic journey, one that can serve as a roadmap to help you grow yours. The Business of You is all about frank conversations and unique business wisdom for the entrepreneur. It's a chance to tune into the story behind the brand and retrace the path of those who walked this road before you so you can pave your own road to success. Welcome to The Business of You. Today's guest is Brian Clayton. Brian is currently the CEO and co-founder of a company called GreenPal. One thing Brian noted to me in our pre-interview was he is one of, actually the first person we've interviewed that's gone from being a blue collar entrepreneur to a software engineer and starting a a software company. Um, He built a mobile app with two co-founders. They actually built it themselves, not having a coding background at all, but I won't give too much away. In the introduction, you'll hear all about the story during the interview. And before Brian started GreenPal, he started a company called Peachtree, which was lawn care. And he started that as a teenager in high school and grew it all the way to an eight-figure company and sold it. Super impressive. Brian's a really talented guy. He's a very driven and ambitious person, and he totally brings to light the meaning of if you want to do something, you'll find a way to do it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Business of You. Brian, welcome to the show today. How are you? Rachel, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'm doing great. Looking forward to learning all about you and your background. Um, speaking of your background, would love to hear your journey as an entrepreneur. You've started two companies that seem to be extremely successful. So what were the early years like in, in Brian's life? Yeah. So currently I'm CEO, co-founder of a company called GreenPal. GreenPal is a mobile app that works kind of like Instacart or DoorDash or even Uber but for lawn mowing services. So if you're a homeowner and need to get someone to mow your yard, rather than calling around all over Craigslist or something, you just download GreenPal, pop your address in, somebody comes out and does it for you like magic. Uh, GreenPal is a 10-year overnight success. Uh, My two co-founders and I have been at this business for a little over a decade, and now we're nationwide in the United States, a few hundred thousand people using the app, and still growing 40, 50% year over year. Um, Before GreenPal, had a landscaping company, started mowing grass in high school as a way to make extra cash. Uh, I was actually forced into the lawn mowing business by my father. He got tired of watching me play Nintendo all day. And he said, hey, get off your butt. I lined up for you to go mow the neighbor's yard. And I made 20 bucks uh, to cut the neighbor's grass in an hour's work. And in the mid nineties, that was was a lot of money. And so I stuck with that little lawn mowing business all through high school, all through college, and ended up growing it into a real company. over a 15-year period of time, grew it from just me and a push mower to me and around 150 employees, getting it to over eight figures a year in revenue. And then in 2013, it was acquired by a national uh, company in the industry. And uh, after that, I took some time off, figured out what I wanted to do and decided, hey, you know, somebody's going to build uh, an app like Airbnb or Uber, but for lawn mowing, 
why not be me? Why, why, why can't I do that? And it was kind of naivete as an asset. I didn't know how challenging it was going to be to, 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 to transition from a blue collar entrepreneur to a tech entrepreneur, but recruited two co-founders, got in the trenches and started working on building something from scratch again. And I'm glad I did it because uh, I've evolved into a whole new person along the way. I bet. Were, are either of your uh, co-founders at GreenPal, do they have a tech or software background? You know, uh, the short answer is no. And uh, ideally, you, you when you're starting a tech company, you get uh, what's called a hacker and a hustler. So you get somebody who knows the business side, uh, who's good sales driven, who's organized, who 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 can grind a, a project forward. And then you get a hacker, uh, somebody who uh, knows the tech side. Maybe maybe they've been tinkering on websites since high school or something like that. And those two talents come together and. And you build something from scratch. Well, we didn't have that. We had three hustlers. We had three three people that were were sufficiently motivated to do something new with their life, wanted to pour their life's efforts into a project. And so we had to teach ourselves to become hackers. We had to learn how to build software. We had to learn how to write code, learn how to design software. So that took a long time. It took about three years. But uh, I think you can do, you can take either approach. You can you can recruit a technical technical co-founder, or you can become one these days. How is it having three co-founders? How has that, and which of the three of you was the initiator? Whose idea was this? So the idea was, uh, I came up with while I was running the landscaping business because it was kind of obvious to me. As I grew that landscaping business to, to 90 trucks going out every day, we had, a, we had a, a brand presence in our local marketplace in Nashville, Tennessee. People knew us for landscaping. And so People would call us all day long wanting us to do basic lawn maintenance services for them, but we no longer offered those services to residential clientele. We were doing bigger contracts, airports, shopping centers, apartments, things of that sort, and we no longer did the the basic lawn maintenance. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we would refer those calls to, to smaller individuals because we had a value of running that company to always be helpful no matter what. And so we would try to help these folks who would call into our front office and refer them to uh, smaller individuals who wanted that business, but they had no visibility in the marketplace. And so in effect, we were this connector service. We weren't making, you know, we weren't making any money doing it, but we were at least helping folks out. And uh, so I saw that in analog, you know, that we were hand cranking this, this connector service between buyers and sellers. And so when I sold the business, I, I thought, you know, somebody's going to build an app to make that connection process a lot smoother. These people want to do this work. These people want to hire them for it. They can't find each other. And uh, so the idea was one that I kind of just saw, uh, you know, manifest while running my, my company. As I was just sitting there wondering what I was going to do, I was running this idea by friends and family. and. Two of my friends were saying, were saying, well, if you want to go all in and, and do this, I'll do it with you uh, because they wanted to they wanted to leave their, their full-time job and do something new with their life, really. And that's kind of how it all came together. It was two people I trusted that, that I knew were sufficiently motivated to want to start something from scratch. And that was all we had going for us, really. Yeah, that's great. I'm curious, what was everybody's personal life like? Because, you know, it's not easy to leave a steady income and really take a gamble and start a software, especially when none of the three of you had a, a software or tech background. So did everybody have a little bit of uh, leeway financially saved in the bank? I, I'm assuming you did because you sold a, you know, a very healthy company. But how about the other two? 
It's a very good question. And um, I think as it relates to starting a new business, uh, specifically a tech business, you're, you know, Mark Cuban has a good quote, the least you can live on, the greater your options. And, and, and your personal burn and your personal life is your business burn. They really are one and the same. And that was one thing I was actually looking for with the co-founders was I need two people that can live on rice and beans for a long time. Um, you know, we weren't, we weren't unicorns. We were really cockroaches. You couldn't kill yeah. us. And, and, and so that's really another thing we had going for us was that we, we, we lived very cheaply, uh, but both were friends of mine, not, you know, not married, no kids. Okay. And, and, and so, you know, I think if you, if you have those obligations, if you have a, if you have a big house payment, two car right. payments, putting a kid through school, uh, credit card debt, things of that sort, it's going to be, it's going to be challenging to, to, to start a business flat footed, um, you know, if you, if you need, you know, a hundred grand a year to live. And, mm-hmm. and so, so for us, that was one thing that we had going for us was that we lived very cheaply. Mm-hmm. Um, we could survive on rice and beans for a long time that it took to, to get this business going. It took about four or five years to get it going. I bet. Had we each had to have a six figure income to make ends meet, we would have been dead on arrival. Mm-hmm. And did you start developing the software right off the bat or did you develop a manual process to kind of test things out before you were all in on the tech side? It's a good question. We, we actually were, uh, we bought into the fantasy that we could outsource the tech. Okay. And uh, a, lot, a lot of new uh, tech founders believe this. And we did too, that, mm-hmm. that all we had to do was hire a development firm to build the app and, and we would design it and, and market it and be off and going. We did that and we spent $150,000 of our own money paying a development shop to, to build what we thought the app should be. It took them like nine months and it was, and it was a, a dud. It didn't have the features it needed. It was clunky. It was hard to use. Didn't match the vision. Um, and so that was a hard, painful lesson that we learned that if we were going to be in the tech business, we had to learn how to build software. We had to learn how to write code, literally build it ourselves because it's just, it's just so much iteration over and over and over again. You really don't know what it should be. So you can't outsource it. You have to build it as you're interacting with users. Looking back, it's kind of as silly as if you wanted to start a five-star restaurant um, and you had no chef and, and you yourself have never developed any recipes or don't even like cooking. You know, that's what starting a tech company is with no developers on the team is kind of like. So you guys all taught yourself how to code? Yeah, hard, painful. The three of you actually built the software. Yes. Uh, that's so, impressive. So, so my co-founder... Um, so here we are, we're nine months in, yeah. we, we have spent all of our money. It's not like I took all of the money from my, my sale and rolled sure. it in the green pile. Cause I didn't, I didn't, I, I didn't want to go backwards. So, so the, in, in, the, the new project had, had to kind of stand on its own. So we pulled together, uh, you know, maybe 150, $200,000 of our own money. This was liquidated 401ks, credit card wow. checks, things of that sort. And we blew it all on, on paying a dev shop. And that was a zero. Okay. And so here we are. We're nine months in. Uh, we have a, a product that's barely usable that we spent a bunch of time and money building. And we don't know how to build software. Um, but we hustled up like 20 or 30 customers to use it. And, and at the time, we were reading a book called The Startup Owner's Manual by Steve Blank, which is the predecessor uh, to The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. And those two books teach you when you're developing a new new software uh, technology to get out of the building and go talk to users. 
And so, well, we had two problems. We didn't have any users. And so we had to pass out flyers all over Nashville, Tennessee, begging people to use this thing. And then we would meet with every one of them that would use it. And they would all like tell us everywhere the thing sucked and it broke and it didn't work. But they never told us, we don't need this. They never told us, they were actually let down that it didn't work. They were disappointed that it didn't work. And we took that as validation to keep going. And so then we, 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 had, we had to like take the, the, the hard, the, you know, understand the hard reality of that we had to learn how to build software. And so my co, my co, one of my co-founders uh, put uh, $9,000 on his credit card for a software boot camp. And so he went uh, five days a week, uh, eight hours a day, learning how to do backend uh, programming for Ruby on Rails. Whoa. And then I, I took every online course I could to become the world's uh, most terrible front-end engineer. <laughs> and, and between those two, the two of us, and then my third co-founder, he, he did everything else. Uh, product design, customer support, PR, uh, content writing, and everything else. And so the three of us just poured our life's energy um, you know, no, no social life, no fun, no, 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 nothing seven days a week for about three years into learning how to build software and, and working on ourselves and working on the business at the same time. That's intense. That is very intense. How was the dynamic between the three of you in those early years? It was, uh, it was remarkably, luckily easy. Good. Because, m- and I say luckily because most co-founder relationships break apart because um, for whatever reasons, one person thinks the other person's working harder right. or one yep. person uh, thinks the other person is slacking or there's not a clear uh, delineation of wh- who's supposed to be doing yes. what. And so most, most co-founder relationships bust apart because of that. And I, and I, and I actually uh, coach founders to try to go alone for a while mm-hmm. uh, before you just rush out and get a co-founder. Cause I got extremely lucky that the three of us had made the decision that no matter what we were going to work on our best idea and, and we were going to pour our life's uh, GDP, I guess you could say our life's yeah. output into <laughs> our best idea. And I guess, fortunately, none of us are terribly creative because we had one good idea. It was this uh, Uber for lawn mowing. And so we just showed up every day, six, seven days a week, working on this one idea Mm. and slowly got a little momentum going, slowly Mm. started making a little bit of money, slowly taking that money and putting it back to work with more developers and more designers, more content creators, things like that, and slowly got the snowball going, but it it took a while. And so we never really had any big, big disagreements across the three of us. Now we all three, uh, you know, uh, took solace in the fact of how hard it was. And we all three were, uh, I guess, uh, benevolent to one another in terms of not giving up. But luckily, we, we didn't have any like misalignment of what we were trying to do. I read a pretty good quote the other day. Uh, it was Charlie Munger's 99th birthday yesterday, uh, who, who is Warren Buffett's right-hand man. And he said, he said most of life's problems um, are due to the fact that one is forgetting what one is trying to do. And, and I think that's so true in life and business. Like, like a lot of times we get sidetracked from what the goal is and what it is, what it is we're trying to do. And if you just focus on what that goal is, it takes care of a lot of these, these little things. And that, that's how it was for us. We were monotically focused to build something that was meaningful and big to hundreds of thousands, hopefully one day millions of users. And, and then we didn't really worry about anything else. Mm-hmm. 
that's great that you are able to do that and stay focused. That is a massive problem for so many entrepreneurs, right? How did you start to expand, you know, once you, you got the software just right, how did you start to expand nationally? What was your, yeah. after Nashville, like, was it a next city or a next state? And is it through franchise? So if you can talk a little bit about that. That was a big challenge. We, we wanted a, a nationwide product and that was the goal day one, but, but uh, we knew that the product wasn't good enough to, to, to expand into other cities. So we spent three years in Nashville, Tennessee, just in our own backyard with hundreds of users, eventually a thousand users, then two or 3000 users, making the experience more delightful, easier, more reliable, more predictable, basically making more ha- more people happy on a daily basis than pissed off on a daily basis. There was once upon a time, it was inverse, like at uh, a hundred people, 90 would be pissed off. And then we had to invert that. And so, and so uh, we, we knew there was no reason to go to any of the cities until we can make a product that was delightful and an experience that was delightful. And so, and so we, uh, we, we, we knew, okay, well, let's just stay here as much as it stinks to just only be local. Let's just stay here and, 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 and get it right before we move into other cities. And that, after about year two or three, that's what we did. And then we moved into our second city, which was Tampa, Florida. The only reason we picked Tampa, Florida was because we had a friend that lived there that we could crash on his couch. And uh, we worked there locally for a while and then slowly began to develop a playbook where we could roll out and stand up cities without having to go there and and to do it remotely from, from our office in Nashville. And so little by little, we refined the playbook, got it better and better. And, uh, and, and, and made it repeatable and predictable yeah. to where now we're in, in every major city in the United States, any city with a population of above 20,000, you can wow. order a lawn mowing service, uh, using your green pal app through the app. Wow. So after Tampa, what was your next city? Uh, first, the first cities were, uh, Nashville, Tampa, Atlanta, then Charlotte, then St. Louis. I mean, I could probably name the first 30. Uh, okay. and it, all of that was very, uh, hand cranking it was going there it was you know i I know the i know the coffee i know the inside of every starbucks in the tampa bay area uh you know meeting with vendors meeting with suppliers meeting with homeowners meeting with the people on the consumer side as well um getting that feedback face to face it was required at the time because we didn't know what we were doing there was no playbook we were figuring it out and I, i believe like the first hundred or maybe even thousand sales of whatever business you have should be hand to hand should be face to face should be manual so then you know what the systems and processes and technology you need to build and how that needs to shape because you don't know until you hand crank it so that's how it was for us we we had to build these cities very locally yeah. from the ground up until we could figure out a process to 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 roll them out faster and would all three of you kind of migrate to that next city after you got the the city you were in more autonomous? No, it was just, it just, it was just me uh, at the time okay. uh, because because my Zach, my my co founder that went to went to uh, code school, you know, I mean there was just a mountain of work for him to do, and so like we needed him behind his laptop in a in a in a windowless office for as many hours a week as possible. And then my other co founder, Gene. Um, you know, his job was was content and PR. So as I was going to, let's say, Charlotte, North Carolina, you know, he was grinding out the pitches for for the local media, uh, begging them to co- to cover us. You know, your local Fox, ABC, CBS, your local newspaper, 
uh, begging them to, to cover the launch and, you know, did remarkably well, you know, every year he's, he's on TV 40 or 50 times, um, oh, doing, great. doing local earned media. And so that was all he focused on. That was a big mm-hmm. part of our strategy. Yeah, that's smart. So what is your business model? Do you make a small percentage of every lawn that's cut or how does that work? Yeah, much like Uber or or yeah. even you know DoorDash, we take a percentage of the transaction that flows to the platform. That varies depending on how much volume the, the vendor is doing on the platform from like five to 20%. Um, and so it's our job to load up the, the lawn care service provider's schedule with as much work as he or she wants to do Uh, make their life easier with getting paid quickly, not having to do marketing, organizing their route, basically a business in a box. Yeah. uh, So they can make more money with less hassle. And we take a small percentage of that to where it makes more sense for them to do their business on top of GreenPal than than do it the old way. Okay. Interesting. Well, and you're doing like all the sales, marketing, the bookings, right? That's That's all done through the app. And I think too, traditionally, like this is an industry that that probably suffers with being responsive and booking things right and being consistent. Yeah. There's, there's a, the problem. So the problem we solve on the vendors, there's two value propositions and almost two customers. The problem we solve on the, on the, on the vendor side, on the pro side is getting paid quickly because, because every lawn care pro is, is like the last person to get paid in the stack Mm. of family bills. And they have like this accounts receivable that just looks horrible. It's 30, 60, 90, 120 days plus. Wow. We eliminate that for them. They get paid within 24 hours of the work that they do. So that's a big value add, getting all the work that they want to do and organizing that in one place. Yes. And, and then on the consumer side, it's it's responsiveness, it's speed. It's mm-hmm. If I hire them for Thursday, I get it done on Thursday. There's this weird phenomenon of the case of the disappearing lawn guy mm-hmm. where they show up maybe one time and then they drop off the face of the earth. Um, and when we first started the, the, the business, we thought that the value prop was going to be um, cost savings mm-hmm. because as a consumer, you sign up and you get five quotes back in like a minute. Yeah. Yeah. And you can compare those quotes. If you want to hire the cheapest one, you can. So we thought, okay, this would be a competitive way for them to save money. And as, and as uh, time went on, we were talking and interviewing more, more consumers. We began to understand that, no, it, it really wasn't cost. It's, it's reliability. Hmm. It's will the person show up and actually mm-hmm. do the job and do it right was was way more important than saving five dollars a lawn mowing. Yeah. And so as time goes on, you know, we we have optimized for speed, reliability, mm-hmm. and just peace of mind, knowing that you're gonna set it up for every two weeks and they're gonna be there and you don't have to worry about it. you don't have to like wrangle the lawn guy anymore. Right, right. I noticed on your website too that you're offering um uh, plowing services as well. We started doing that a couple of years ago uh, okay. for a couple of reasons. The the business is seasonal, so yes. and so you know from December, January, February, um, in eighty percent of the country, it's it, it, there there is no lawn mowing getting done. Mm-hmm. So we we offered snow removal as a way to backfill that a little bit, and then also uh, to keep us relevant in the media. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you really want the media talking about you year yeah. round, and nobody's talking about lawn mowing or landscaping in December. <laughs> But guess what? They are talking about snow removal. And so we're, we're covered in, in local media affiliates year round because we offer snow removal now. We don't make a ton of money on it, but it does yeah. keep us relevant in, in kind of the, the ether of, of people talking about stuff, which is what, you know, well, a lot of our a lot of our customers come through organic SEO 
And so that's a big part of it is, is just keeping our name out there, keeping us fresh in, 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 the, in the universe of home services. Yeah, totally. Well, and there's so much value, right, in the ongoing marketing, the earned media as well, as you mentioned. That's right. Um, you, where did the name Green Pal come from? <laughs> it took us about a day to come up with a name. That's uh, not bad. A yeah. day. <laughs> yeah, we we uh, we were we were just buzzing on. Okay, what 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 are we going to call this thing? And and we wanted to to make to have a brand was like we are connecting you with your friend, your bud, your pal who's going to be there with you to mow the yard for you for as long as you own your house. We're not your lawn mowing service. We are the connecting service to help connect you with your your relationship with your lawn guy. And so that's how we, we stumbled on pal and green for the, for the color of green grass. And, uh, we picked it and just kept on going. I um, love that. now, now, uh, on the flip side, we then spent way too much time on thinking about branding and, uh, we, we, and, and all of these things around brand, um, with no customers. And so here we are with zero customers and we're wondering, okay, so what should the color scheme be? And what does the logo look like? And we even designed this character called Gary, the Green Pal, who you still see on the website to this day. And he's like the brand mascot because we read on a blog post somewhere that we should have a brand mascot. Uh, and, and, and so we spent like three months, maybe even longer, designing all these things with zero customers. We had zero customer feedback zero, zero validation of anything. So we wasted way too much time worrying about that stuff in the early days. We really should have not even worried about any of that, uh, gone out and hustled up a hundred customers, then circled back to it maybe on when we got on first base. Uh, and so that, that was a mistake that we made in the early days. We worried about brand too early. I think brand is probably like in the, in, in, in the video and like super Mario brothers as a video game, uh, you know, maybe even level three of, of Super Mario Brothers. You worry yeah. about brand, not 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 when you know when you have zero revenue and zero customers. Yeah, but it's kind of the fun stuff to do, right? It's and the, I, it and was I find fun. a that lot was of people, thing. yeah, a lot of people do that. But you mentioned something early in our interview about Peachtree, uh, one of the core values of the company, and you know that too is like very much a part of the brand you're building. That's right. So, did you all identify core values for Green Pal as well early on? I think I think values are an extension of what do the founders care about? What what are the personalities of the founders? It's almost like scaffolding around the founders and it goes out. And and I like to I like to think of values less as values but more like virtues. Like what do we actually do and and what what do we really focus on and prioritize and what do we really care about? Like if 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 a homeowner calls in and has a problem, do we actually give a damn? about solving their problem for them. Do we actually care that we let them down somewhere? Same with the, on the vendor side, you know, do we care? Do we really care that we're improving their livelihood in some way? Like if, if, if they're able to buy a new lawnmower or put a kid through college or put a down payment on a home, do we really give a crap about that? You know, th these are our values and, and more or less they, they manifest in terms of virtues. Like we celebrate these things. We celebrate when, 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 a, when, a, when a vendor tells us that they were able to hire a new employee or they were able to pay down uh, student loan debt or something like that. And so these are more or less our values. Like we care about improving the livelihood of the service providers that use our platform. We care about offering a nice convenience to, to, to homeowners. 
and 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 really not even worry about writing a bunch of words on a wall and calling them our values is like keeping it simple like really giving a crap about the people that use our platform is where our values come from and and, and try to manifest them into virtues that you know what does the customer support uh, uh, a phone uh, 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 ticket center look like? You know, are we getting the people back back to people in an hour or less? Or or what does the live chat look like? Or when somebody calls in, do we pick up? Really giving a crap about these things is, is where yeah. our values come from. Yeah, no. And I think that's great. And I think customer service, right? All the last things you mentioned, those are so important in in terms of building a brand, right? I mean, that's really the substance behind the brand. The other pieces, the logo, the colors, the mascot, like, again, like those are kind of the the pretty front end pieces. It's like, when we walk out of our home, what are we wearing that morning? That says a little bit about us, but what really tells people about us is, you know, what's in our soul, how we how we behave as humans. And That's right. I think that very much converts to companies as well. Yeah, the brand is a promise. And, yes. and, and it's a promise of, of what's going to happen. You know, are you going to, if you have a problem, are you going to get taken care of? Is this thing going to work? Is it going to solve a problem for me? And everything you're doing on a daily basis are deposits into the brand and bank account mm-hmm. or, yep. or withdrawals. Yes. Uh, and, 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 you know, if you try to like cut corners on outsourcing your customer service to a, to somewhere else where people don't care about the, the people using the product, you know, those are with, that may be a withdrawal from, from customer service. I mean, from, from right. brand equity. And so, and so for, for us, we look at it that way. Like brand is a, is a bank account and you're making mm-hmm. deposits every day or you're making withdrawals. And if you get overdrawn, uh, particularly going into a recession, you could go into yes. a, a, a death spiral. Yeah, such a good point. So what do you see in the future for GreenPal? I mean, you've expanded now across the country. What are some of your goals for this year and then on into the future? We keep our goals pretty simple. Uh, we, we, we worry, we write some goals on the wall, but we almost don't even worry about them. We, we, we worry about the process, the routine, and the daily habits of of what our team is doing. Our team is now forty five people. What is the daily process? What is what is the what does the system look like that's going to get us to the goal? So we focus all of our time on that. Uh, but five years, we we really want to be uh, in the lexicon of the English language, kind of like kind of like Uber and DoorDash and. And Instacart are, you know, these companies have raised billions of dollars in venture capital. You know, we haven't raised any outside capital. So we're kind of bootstrapping our way there. But uh, right now we're around 300,000 people using the app to, to get this chore done. We want to be a million and, and nine figures in revenue. And, and so we're work, working on the process and the system, the routine mm-hmm. to get there is where we spend mm-hmm. all of our time. But those mm-hmm. are our big goals. Mm-hmm. Do you think you'll ever raise outside capital or have the need to? You know, in the early days, is so if it's it's kind of a paradox. You know, I I think we are where we are because we bootstrapped. Um, there was a lot of ideas for Uber for X ideas. You know, Uber for home cleaning, laundry service, valet parking, uh, locksmithing, tow trucks, you name it. And ninety five percent of them crashed and burned. And they and they and they crashed and burned a lot of venture capital with them. And so, so for one reason why we kind of made it out of that alive is because we 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 had to focus on one thing, our customer, uh, because we had to we had to get revenue to stay alive, 
And so, and so that simple thing is what kept us alive for, for a long time. So I don't think we ever will, to be honest. But then again, if, if you said, okay, well, rewind 10 years. And if you had to do it all over again, you know, knowing what you know now, what would you do? I would go raise a bunch of venture capital because I can move really quickly <laughs> and I wouldn't yeah. make all those mistakes. So, so it's kind of a paradox. Right. Uh, but I think the ship has already sailed for us. You know, we, we're yes. profitable. Uh, we have three uh, lines on our cap table as our three co-founders. So that's really nice. And that's uh, true. Yeah. And so, and, and we're kind of in charge of our own destiny. You know, I, yeah. I think it's the next couple of years are going to be um, pretty painful for a lot of startups that raise a bunch of capital mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, this, the, the dynamics of that, the, they're, they're, they're going to start to unwind. So, so it's a good yeah. spot to be in now. Right. Well, and thankfully, too, you know, you seem to be in a pretty recession-proof industry, right? As long as people want to keep outsourcing. Yeah, the um, grass is always going to grow. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I, it's, it's, a, it's not a sexy business. And I think the, there's, par- there's, a, there's, there's correlation between the least glamorous your business, um, the greater your, ch- your chances of success and the more durable the business. Really? And so yeah, I, I think that I really do. Like, okay. you know, it's a great time to be a plumber. It's a great right. time yes. to, to, to have a, a roofing company. It's a great yeah. time to, to, you know, like have these traditional style of businesses because right. they're, they're durable and yeah. they're less susceptible to these extreme ups and downs that we're seeing in the last couple of years. So true. All all the trades I think are, and I also don't think they're susceptible really to AI. No, you know, unless there's some robot invented that could cut your grass, which you know I guess we have they have those robo things for the house to vacuum. But you know, there's so many nuances to a yard. You right, know? right. Yeah, I think we're so. going to see uh, the maid from the Jetsons. Uh, I can't remember her name. <laughs> before. <Me> either. <laughs> But uh, I saw I saw an interesting infographic the other day about how many technologies the Jetsons predicted. So I think we're going to see uh, Molly or whatever her name was before we have <laughs> before we have robotic mowers doing all the trimming. <laughs> well, it's great. What's where's the best place for people to learn about you, and also where can they download the app if yeah. they're interested? You know, yeah, if nobody somebody uh, doesn't want to waste time. Uh, wrangling a lawn guy or mowing your own yard, uh, just download Green Pal in the App Store or Play Store. And if anybody wants to reach out to me personally, Instagram's a, a great place to reach me, Brian M. Clayton. Just drop me a DM there. Awesome. Thanks so much, Brian. Thank you, Rachel. I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Business of You. If you found a little dose of inspiration or learned something new, please leave a review and share it with a friend or even two. Interested in building your brand and business? Tune in next time to the Business of You podcast. And remember, there's only one you. You're the biggest differentiator your business has. Until next time, friends.